A few nights ago, I gave a talk on the afflictive energies of greed and hatred and ignorance, which together are known as the three root poisons. And I talked about how when these energies are not recognized with mindfulness, they can give rise to the five hindrances, which, just as a quick recap, are sensual desire, ill will or aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt. And the reason that we want to pay attention to these hindrances is that as the Buddha is reported to have said, these are qualities of mind that overwhelm awareness and weaken discernment, weaken discernment. And he goes on to say that when a practitioner is, at, is without strength and is weak in discernment, it's impossible to understand what's for one's own benefit, to understand what is for the benefit of others, and to understand what is for the benefit of both. So I think it's worth highlighting here that the Buddha is talking about this practice not only in terms of our own benefit, but for the benefit of others too. And I'll come back to that point later on, but I know in my own experience that when we're on retreat, it can be quite easy to lose sight of the bigger picture of why we're doing all this hard work. So at times we might need to consciously bring to mind the aspirations that we wrote on opening night that are glowing here besides me. When I see them out of the corner of my eye, they actually look like a little candle or something. They, they really do feel like they're radiating some kind of energy. So we can bring to mind our aspirations and we might bring to mind too all the ways that our previous practice has helped to orient us towards a different relationship with ourselves, which in turn improves our relationship with others too. And we can think of this as the process of befriending that Greg and I have been talking about. And although befriending might sound nice in, in theory, in practice, as we most of us know, it's not always easy. So we've been speaking in the afternoon Brahma Vihara instructions how so often when we begin to incline the heart and the mind in this direction, what we often encounter are some of the obstacles to goodwill, to friendliness. And I mentioned early on in my own practice that when I would try to cultivate goodwill, I so often found myself actually lost in ill will, in aversion, which is the second of the five hindrances. And I've already spoken quite a bit about the first hindrance of sensual desire. So tonight I'd like to move on to the second hindrance of ill will or aversion. But don't worry, I'm not going to spend the whole talk on that. I actually was experiencing aversion, writing about aversion. So just to give a sense of how, um, yeah, in different ways this quality is challenging. So I want to just... Uh, touch into it before exploring how aversion can actually be a very powerful support for the arising of skillful qualities such as compassion. 
But before we get there, I'd like to talk just a little bit more about aversion, how it arises, how it can be released, how we can prevent it from coming up again, which, as you might remember, are the instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta in relation to all five of the hindrances. But just to backtrack a little bit, uh, when it comes to working with the mind, we start, the Buddha laid out a progressive path of practice in the Satipatthana Sutta. So the other day, I think it was, Greg talked about the third foundation, third domain of awareness, which is mindfulness of the mind. And in this third foundation, the instruction is to simply know when specific mind states are present and when they're absent. For example, to know if greed, hatred and ignorance are present or not. And to know if the mind is contracted or expansive. Is it distracted or undistracted and so on. And this is the crucial first stage in working with the mind just getting to know our mental states exactly as they are without getting involved in them, without necessarily doing anything about them. We're trying to simply become intimate with them to get to know their nature, that all of these states are impermanent. They're unsatisfactory. They don't belong to us. They don't define who we are. They're not under our control. So this first stage is simply knowing them as they are without jumping too quickly into trying to get rid of them. Because if we do that, often we're just acting from aversion and we miss a very valuable opportunity to train in gently expanding our capacity to be with difficulties. So we don't want to immediately rush into applying an antidote to them before we've taken the time to really become familiar with how these mind states show up for us, to know the effects that they have on the body and on the heart-mind. And sometimes just this simple act of recognition, of knowing and accurately identifying an unpleasant mind state can help it to release. And this is where one way that mental noting can be very helpful Because as neuroscience research has shown, the part of the mind that's doing the noting is not the part that's feeling the mind state or the emotion. So at least for that split second when we're making the note, we're not actually in the mind state. And the more we can keep naming or noting it, the more we start to perforate the solidity of it. And sometimes it can just break up and dissolve. So being able to name what a particular state is is a very helpful tool and most of us do need some training in that. In the beginning, I think it's a little bit like throwing darts at a dartboard. We might need to audition some different notes, some different labels and finally one will sort of hit the bullseye and stick and then we go, oh, oh, that's grief, oh. Oh, it's loneliness or whatever the state might be. So the first stage is simply to know them, but, and, if those states are becoming particularly recurrent and intense and perhaps um, setting up a situation where we may be 
in danger of acting out from them, then we might need to become more involved with them to get more engaged. And this is where we move into the terrain of the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the fourth domain of attention, specifically in relation to the hindrances. So the other night I read you the instructions in relation to sense desire. These instructions are same for all five hindrances but I'll read you the one for ill will or aversion now. It says here, meditators, while ill will is present in one, a meditator knows there is ill will present in me. Or while ill will is not present in one, one knows there is no ill will present in me. One also knows how the ill will which has not yet arisen comes to arise. One knows how the ill will that has arisen comes to be discarded, and one knows how the discarded ill will will not arise in the future. So you might notice that the language here is very neutral, very objective, very impersonal. But with the hindrance of aversion in particular, relating to it with this kind of neutral attitude can be quite a challenge. Because aversion is inherently unpleasant. Unpleasant feeling tones, Vedana, are what give rise to aversion, but then the aversion itself is unpleasant. So it's very easy to, for it to escalate into aversion to the aversion. And we can quickly find ourselves lost in afflictive states of anger and fear, which are the two main ways that the hindrance of aversion expresses itself. So as I briefly mentioned the other night, this hindrance of ill will actually covers a whole spectrum of intensity of these mind states that are rooted in either anger or fear. So for example, in relation to anger, it includes irritation, frustration, cynicism, resentment, jealousy, judgment, self-judgment, rage, etc., And in relation to fear, it includes insecurity, nervousness, anxiety, shame, panic, terror, and so on. And part of the challenge when working with aversion is, again, the mind's inherent negativity bias that we've mentioned a few times. Because these aversive states are potentially at least dangerous to our survival, we tend to more easily believe them, to take them seriously and to identify with them, to feel them as me, who I am. I'm so judgmental or I'm so angry or I'm so scared and so on. Instead of simply recognizing the impersonal nature of the mind state, knowing, oh, judgment has arisen. Judgment feels like this, unpleasant, not liking not wanting, self-righteousness, tightness in the jaw, and so on. So aversion is unpleasant, and there is that instinctive wanting to push it away. But there's a practice slogan that I found a few years ago that I found really helpful in relation to my own practice, uh, particularly in relation to aversion, 
And I first heard it from the U.S. Dharma teacher Eugene Cash. He says, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. And this is really pointing to how any of these seeming obstacles are actually not things to back up and run away from, but when we can turn and face them, they can become resources for our practice that help develop skillful qualities. But again, one of the challenges um, with our inherent negativity bias and our tendency towards very binary, uh, sort of dualistic ways of experiencing the world because we so easily judge pleasant experiences as good and unpleasant experiences as bad, when we experience unpleasant experiences in meditation, we tend to label it as a bad meditation session, sometimes even taking it further and labeling ourselves as bad meditators. But as we keep emphasizing, we really are trying not to take these energies personally and to understand that they're just arising due to causes and conditions. We can't always prevent them from coming up in the first place, but we can learn how to work with them skillfully so that they release and open up more space in the heart and the mind for skillful states to arise. So the first stage is to simply know the mental states when they're present, when they're absent. And then the second stage is to begin to work with them to understand how these hindrances come up, how they can be discarded, how to not let them rise again in the future. And one of the most powerful antidotes that I know for helping the aversion in particular to release and eventually not to return is the practice of compassion. So what is compassion? This afternoon, Greg uh, led us in some formal compassion practice and he described how compassion is the willingness to meet dukkha unsatisfactoriness or suffering with metta, kindness, instead of our more usual response of trying to get away from suffering, hating it and pushing it away, falling into blame or self-blame. And Greg made the very important point that compassion takes courage. It takes courage to turn and face into our difficulties. And it also takes wisdom to see clearly when we're getting caught in aversive reactions and to know how to come out of them. So this pairing of wisdom and compassion we've named a few times as in terms of the metaphor of the two wings to awakening, these two wings being wisdom and compassion. And we can understand pretty immediately from that metaphor that we need both wisdom and compassion to be in balance if we're metaphorically going to fly. So wisdom in this context is another word for insight, for clear seeing, for understanding the deepest truths of our human experience. And compassion is that capacity to turn towards what's difficult, to meet our own and others' challenges with kindness, care, 
and courage. So these two wings can get out of balance, not only in terms of our individual meditation sessions, but we can see, at least when we look over the longer-term development of our practice, we might recognize phases where one or other of these two wings got a little ahead, or sometimes quite a lot ahead, of the other wing. And perhaps because we're in the insight tradition, it seems to be more common for the wisdom wing to get ahead of the compassion wing. So, for example, perhaps on a more psychological level, we might go through stages where we begin to see all of our so-called defilements, in quotation marks, in full technicolor, in extra high definition. So the old joke that self-knowledge is not always good news when we really start to see clearly our habitual patterns, it can be a little humbling, a little painful. There's also a stage of the practice that's very similar where we we might have developed enough mindfulness to see where we're getting reactive, but we don't yet have the resources to be able to make the necessary changes to... Um, bring that reactivity back to balance. So at these phases in the practice, it can be very discouraging, and we may even at times feel as if we're going backwards. Then on another level, we can also start to see more clearly into the three universal characteristics of experience. So we become acutely aware of unsatisfactoriness, of impermanence, and how nothing um, is really under our control, the fragility of life that Greg spoke about the other night. And these new understandings are in many ways very counter, very opposite to the ways that we usually relate to our experience and certainly to the ways the world around us are encouraging us to relate to our experience. And so it can be challenging to Uh, step into this new way of understanding and to let go of some of the deeply held assumptions about who we are and how the world is. There can be times when we feel quite alienated or disconnected from the things that used to bring us pleasure. So again, at these times, we might need to consciously put some more energy into the compassion wing of the practice for a while to help develop more resilience of heart and mind so that we can navigate these challenging phases with more balance. So those are a couple of ways, examples of how wisdom, the wisdom wing can get ahead of the compassion wing. But sometimes the opposite is true too. And we can go through phases where the compassion gets a little out of balance, gets ahead of the wisdom. So as we start to open to suffering, at times we can feel like we become acutely aware of all the suffering in the world and in ourselves, and perhaps at times feel like we're drowning in it. So in this case, we again, we need to put more emphasis on the wisdom wing and to cultivate the balance, the balance of equanimity. So bringing awareness to each of these two wings of wisdom and compassion 
learning how to balance them is part of the art of this practice. So through all of the practices that we've been doing, we've been emphasizing that they're a gradual training. They're a progressive training that we cultivate and develop and strengthen over time. And in the same way, when we train in compassion, we begin with metta or goodwill, which is the foundation of all of the Brahma-viharas. Metta is the foundation quality that the other three uh, emerge from. And this relationship between metta and the other Brahma-viharas is expressed very beautifully in a short verse from uh, Longchen Rabjampa, who was a 14th century Tibetan Buddhist monk. He says, Out of the soil of friendliness, metta, grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, karuna. Watered with tears of joy, mudita, under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. So metta is the soil that allows the beautiful bloom of compassion to grow and develop. And although seeing compassion as a beautiful bloom is inspiring, sadly, it feels like in mainstream society, at least in my experience, compassion seems to have been pretty seriously undervalued. And if we look at the state of the world right now, it feels to me like we're in a, an epidemic of non-compassion, of often outright cruelty in so many different forms. So we seem to be reaping the results of this undervaluing of compassion on a society-wide scale. And on an individual level, we might recognize a lack of compassion in our own lives too. Perhaps because of mainstream society's tendency towards perfectionism and competitiveness, for many of us, just the idea of cultivating compassion can seem quite foreign or even threatening. And this was certainly true for me at the beginning of my own practice. But I was fortunate because the first uh, insight retreat I ever sat was uh, with Western teachers in Thailand, and they actually um, put an equal emphasis on wisdom and compassion in their teachings. But the first time I sat a 10-day retreat with them, I didn't I literally didn't hear them ever use the word compassion. Nevertheless, I was really inspired by that retreat. And so three months later, I went back to sit with them again. And these particular teachers have their own style of teaching where they actually teach the same, um, they give the same talks word for word on every retreat. So a little bit like Goenka, you're hearing exactly the same 10 days of uh, practice. But the second time I went back, it seemed to me that they had really changed the emphasis of their teaching. And the second time they were talking about compassion over and over. And I felt like I was hit by the sledgehammer and all this new emphasis on compassion just somehow cracked me open. And at the end of the retreat, I went to the teachers and I thanked them for, you know, steering the practice in this new direction. And they just looked at me and laughed and said it was exactly the same as the first time. 
but I just didn't hear it. The first time, it was almost like I didn't have the receptors in my being to even take in what they, what they were offering. And it took, um, don't know what it took, but it took some process before I was able to even receive this aspect of compassion. And yet when I heard it on that second retreat, I really recognized that it was what had been missing from felt like my whole life, from my upbringing, from my family, from my schooling, from my friends. That seemed to me like the missing ingredient. So I share that story just by way of encouragement in case any of you also find this practice of compassion challenging or even alienating, particularly when it comes to self-compassion. So because uh, self-compassion in particular can be um, challenging, I'd like to take a little bit of time now just to explore it some more. In my own experience so far and also in working with students, it seems to be very common that we would actually rather do anything than turn our attention towards our own distress and meet it with kindness. So in the talk that I gave the other night on finding balanced effort, I mentioned how often our practice is driven by what I call, was calling superhero to slug syndrome, I'm describing how we get caught up in excessive striving out of an unseen fear that if we stop, we'll revert to being that loathsome slug that we used to be. And if we don't recognize this unconscious fear-based motivation, then the whole practice can turn into a giant self-improvement project, and it's actually rooted in self-aversion. And because the underlying motivation isn't very healthy, the results at times can be quite harmful. So when I've given talks on balanced effort in the past, I've sometimes included yet another slightly embarrassing story about my own practice. And I didn't share it last night because I thought the talk was going to be too long. But this afternoon when Greg was leading the compassion practice, I realized that the uh, story that I didn't share was actually a turning point for me in terms of self-compassion as well as effort. So I thought I'd share it now. Some of you may have heard it, but it's an experience that I had during my first three-month retreat at IMS back in 2003. And back then, I'd been managing this center for about three years, and I'd heard of places like IMS and Spirit Rock, but they seemed very far off and almost legendary or mythical. So when causes and conditions came together and I was able to sign up for a three-month retreat there, it really felt like the dream of a lifetime, almost like being a kid going to Disneyland or something. And in some ways, I was a bit of a kid. I was still pretty new to insight meditation practice, and I didn't really have any understanding of the need for balance that we've been emphasizing I'd also misunderstood mindfulness to mean sort of pinhead focus, actual fixation on the breath and only the breath. 
I hadn't heard, or probably more accurately, I hadn't let in the kind of instructions that we've been giving here of really opening up to many different aspects of experience with a relaxed and receptive awareness. So back then I was constantly forcing my attention back onto the breath and trying to keep it there in a very rigid way. So during the three months, not surprisingly, after a few weeks of this, I was getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And my teachers kept telling me, just relax, relax. But I was so caught up in this striving mentality that I assumed that being told to relax was for beginners. And so I wanted to even more prove that I wasn't a beginner by trying even harder. And this... um Ironically, the fact that I was trying so hard was actually the real sign that I was a beginner. And it, was, it wasn't till later that I understood that experienced meditators are the ones who know how to make a relaxed and sustainable and consistent effort. But back then, I just was really tying myself in knots with effort. And at one point, I just got so tired that I could barely practice at all. So one afternoon I left the meditation hall and I slunk off into the woods to take a walk. And at some point I came across a small stream in a clearing next to the path. And I was so exhausted I just flopped down next to the stream and I lay there. Just lay there watching bubbles on the surface of the stream kind of arise and pop and arise and pop and a pretty long time went by before I had the energy to get back to the meditation hall. And the next day I had a scheduled meeting with one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, and I was so embarrassed about this failure in my practice that I really thought about skipping the meeting. And then I thought about ways that I could um, perhaps up-level what had happened, but I... um, had taken the five precepts, including the one about not lying. So I felt, okay, I'm just going to have to go and front up. So I confessed to him that I'd spent hours lying watching bubbles in a stream. And I really thought that he would tell me what a hopeless meditator I was and perhaps even kick me out of the retreat. But he didn't. He just smiled and said, great, do that again tomorrow. And this turned out to be a real turning point in my practice because what I realized this afternoon was that when he told me to keep watching the bubbles, what he was actually offering me was compassion. He had seen how tormented I was by inadequacy and he just met me and instead of judging me, he offered me kindness Um, perhaps because I was so tired, my usual defenses were down and I was actually able to receive it. And having had that direct experience of compassion from him, I started to be able to um, develop a more balanced approach, a kinder approach for myself. So again, sharing that story just to normalize how common it is to struggle with self-compassion because so many of us have this very deep conditioning that uh, we exclude ourselves from kindness and care even as we understand the importance of offering it to others. So quite often 
when I'm working with a student who's really tormented by various forms of self-aversion, sometimes I'll suggest the practice of self-compassion and the common reaction is one of either blankness or actual horror. Because the idea, even the idea of opening up to our fears, our vulnerabilities, the places in ourselves that we've deemed unacceptable, those aspects of ourselves that might bring up deep shame. Of course, these can be very threatening to our sense of who we are. So we need to begin this exploration of self-compassion very slowly, very gently, with as much lightness and perhaps even humor as we possibly can. So a few years ago now, I started leading some workshops um, exploring ways of relating to the afflictive energies. And I titled these workshops Transforming Poison into Medicine, which is a phrase that I borrowed from a chapter in a book by Pema Chodron. As most of you probably know, she's an American nun in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and she's written many popular and inspiring books about ways of transmuting life's obstacles into resources. And I love the titles of her book. She, I'll just read you a selection of some of them. They're called things like The Wisdom of No Escape, Start Where You Are, How to Accept Yourself and Others, When Things Fall Apart, The Places That Scare You, Comfortable with uncertainty and no time to lose. There's definitely a theme there. And what I find fascinating about her books is that we love reading about these themes, but when we're actually experiencing them, not so much. It really is difficult to keep being reminded that turning towards suffering, the way out is through. So even to hear sometimes words such as shame or vulnerability can send some of us scurrying back into our wombat holes, as one of the workshop meditators uh, described it. And the problem is that we can't stay in our wombat holes forever. If we can learn how to relate skillfully to even the most toxic emotions such as shame, it's possible for them to transmute, to transform into deep compassion, even joy. And I find it interesting that the Buddha was pointing to this so many thousands of years ago. And these days, um, psychology is only just starting to catch up with this understanding. And there's more and more research that's coming to similar conclusions. So there's a professor of sociology at Houston University, Brene Brown, that some of you might know of. She's spent the past 10 years studying vulnerability, courage, authenticity, and shame. And I don't know if she's a meditator or not, but the conclusions that she comes to in this research do sound a lot like the kind of things Pema Chodron has uh, written about. She even quotes Pema Chodron in some of her interviews. So I'd like to read you a short extract from an interview she did a few years ago. This is Brene Brown. She says, If you have a Petri dish and you have shame in there, 
this pervasive feeling of not being good enough and not being whatever enough, thin enough, rich enough, popular enough, promoted enough, loved enough. It only needs three things to survive in this little Petri dish and actually to grow exponentially and to creep into every corner and crevice of your life. Those three things are secrecy, silence, and judgment. But if you have the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and you douse it with some empathy, if you share your story with someone who can hear you and look back at you and say you're not alone, shame dies. Pema Chodron defines compassion as knowing your darkness well enough that you can sit in the dark with others. Knowing your darkness well enough that you can sit in the dark with others. And she goes on to say, which is why it's so ironic to me that people think that vulnerability is weakness when really letting ourselves fully soften into feeling is one of the most courageous things we can do. Emotions won't kill you, but not feeling them will. Our fear of emotion can absolutely kill us. Pain won't kill us, but numbing pain kills people every single day. We're the most obese, in-debt, medicated, workaholic, addicted adults in human history. Pain won't kill you, but numbing pain kills people every minute of every day. So what's the antidote? To increase our tolerance for discomfort. You do this by practicing being uncomfortable. So how do we do this? How do we work with shame? And I find it very interesting that Brene Brown says that empathy is what makes the difference. In her words, if you can share your story with someone who can hear you and look back at you and say, you're not alone, this is what the help, helps the shame to be released. And to me, what she's describing here is compassion. And in the context of a retreat, we can learn how to do this for ourselves through this pr- process of befriending ourselves. And quite literally, this can mean um, practicing relating to ourselves as we would to our best friend, a friend who is going through hard times. So I think most of us, at least at times, we do have the capacity to be with a good friend and to hear them, to hear their struggles and their challenges and to relate to them in a way that's open and caring and compassionate. So if we can take this same compassion that we might offer to a friend and begin to turn it towards ourselves, then over time and with practice, this starts to become more easy. And eventually our hearts and minds become so imbued with this quality that we're able to offer it more fully and genuinely to more and more people, more and more beings. And then, as it says at the end of the sutta that we've been chanting in the evenings, we might start abiding with a heart filled with compassion, abundant, grown great, measureless, free from enmity, and free from distress. 
So over time, with practice, as our compassion develops, it moves beyond our own self-interest in the direction of more and more altruism, more and more interest and concern for the welfare of others. We see clearly that as human beings, we're all in the same boat. We're all trying to reduce suffering and increase well-being. And we understand that the more we can release our own suffering, the more we can become a resource for others too. So I'd like to close with some of my favorite lines from Shantideva's Bodhicharya Vatara, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. This is a Tibetan text that apparently His Holiness the Dalai Lama reads every day. It's a huge book, but I'll just read a few lines that convey the spirit of the Bodhisattva's aspiration for compassion very powerfully. May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. Thank you for your attention. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.